welcome to Skeptics in Seekers. This is the last week of 2018 for Skeptics and Seekers, but it's the first week of a brand new series on the Bible, and so we are really excited about it. I hope you enjoy it. This is a series that uh, comes from me, and I will be describing, well, before we get into that, in case you've forgotten, I'm David Johnson, the skeptic. And I'm Dale, the Christian or seeker. Okay, and so now that we've got that out of the way, uh, what we're going to be talking about is why the Bible does not matter to me, and why I think it shouldn't matter to you either. So normally when I make a case, I make a case and I just try to describe my feelings about a thing. But I'm going to go a little bit beyond that this time. I'm going to describe my feelings about a thing, but I'm also going to talk about why maybe you should adopt a, a similar feeling. So that's that's a little bit beyond what I uh, generally try to do. But I feel strongly about this issue, uh, and I truly believe that the Bible is an irrelevancy that should be consigned to our past. It should not be in courtrooms. Uh, it should not be in state houses. Uh, it should be left to uh, antiquated, crumbling churches, uh, and it should not have a place on your coffee table. So that's a, that's a lot to try to uh, prove we're going to do it over the course of three or four or even five weeks. I'm not sure. But the thing is, they won't be consecutive. And so next week, uh, Dale will have his subject, and I will come back with another uh, part in my series in the Bible, and that's kind of how it works. In fact, I think that Dale is probably... Uh, running, uh, going to be running a series concurrently uh, with this one as well. So there'll be a there'll be a lot uh, to work through, and uh, you know we've got some we've got some great guests lined up. A little bit, uh, a couple more than uh, we had the last time we talked about it. But rather than talking about our guests, let's just get on with the show, shall we, Dale? Let's do it. All right. So here's the deal. Uh, Whenever uh, we get into debates with Christians, with skeptics, uh, Christians, well, depending on the Christian, they talk a lot about the Bible. In fact, I would argue that without the Bible, there's no God. Without the Bible, there is certainly no Christianity. You cannot pull together Christianity without the Bible. Uh, I don't think you can get to Jesus uh, as any Christian understands him without the Bible. You can't get to God without the Bible. In fact, if you take literature, even religious literature before God, no Jehovah. So you need the Bible to even find um, that guy. Uh, the Bible is central to the Christian claim. They simply cannot make an argument. They cannot make a convert. They cannot make a case without appealing to the Bible. And I argue that we grant them too much when we allow them to make their case with the Bible. The Bible is an irrelevancy. It does not matter what the Bible says on any given subject. It's it, The Christian automatically loses when the Bible comes up. In fact, uh, just a little insight on me and how I work on the boards. Sometimes what I want to do is make a Christian explain why they believe a certain thing. I don't care what it is. I just want to I just want to ask them, okay, but why do you believe that? Where did you get that information from? Let me tell you the answer that I am looking for. I got it from the Bible. 
Now, they understand that that's the answer I'm looking for, and they almost never give it. And you know why they don't give it? Because they know that the Bible is a losing argument. The moment they claim that this thing that they are uh, saying that you need to believe and do, uh, or this thing that they've bent their lives around, is from this old dusty book, they have lost the argument. And so I'm going to explain a little bit about why that is. Uh, they have lost the argument with me and why I think it sh they should automatically lose the argument with you. Uh, so with that said, my first point in this series uh, of why the Bible uh, should be ignored as the irrelevancy uh, that it is, is that uh, ultimately... God's opinion is meaningless. It's meaningless to me, should be meaningless to you. This is going to be the most difficult case that I am going to make in this entire series because I am granting the Christian almost everything that the Christian wants. I am granting that the Bible is accurate. I am, am granting that the Bible is God-breathed, whatever that means, whatever they say it means. I am granting that there is a God who can breathe it in the first place. I am granting that this God meets some definition of good. Now, we might wrangle over what, what good is, and this is where my grant may uh, come apart a little bit, but I'm going to try to grant as much of that as I can, too. So I'm granting as much as I can to the Christian and I'm still going to try to make the case that given all that, the Bible is still meaningless and that God's opinion is little more than opinion and that it is not binding. It is not something that you have to bend your life around. So with that, uh, you, I, I strongly encourage you to read the blogs this week. There's, there are some weeks where you can listen to the podcast and you don't, you don't need to go to the blog. Now, those weeks are seldom. But this is one of those weeks where I encourage you to read the blog posts uh, because I've written up a, a blog post that's under a 1,000 words. Uh, Dale has responded to that blog post. Uh, it's all very readable, and most of our uh, points are there. Uh, I'm going to start, in fact, I'm, uh, rather than try to make all of my points because I know that Dale is going to uh, rebut to, to my three main points, I'm, gonna, I'm just going to give as one example, my happiness matters to me. In fact, I'm going to make uh, the case that happiness is, in fact, the most important thing. It's the most important thing to me. It's the most important thing to you. It's the most important thing to everybody, whether you admit it or not. It is the most important thing. So here's, here's how it goes. So first of all, I, I want to do things that make me happy, and you want to do things that make you happy. So this, is, this is an obvious thing. Nobody wants to do things that makes them unhappy. Now, some of the things that make people happy may seem unpleasant to other people. I mean, you might be into S&M, for instance. That wouldn't make me happy. But, you know, tying yourself up and having, getting yourself beaten with whips might actually make you happy. Uh, now, that may seem miserable to other people, but you are actually pursuing what makes you happy. And I contend that people always pursue what makes them happy. Helping people makes people happy. Just talk to people and ask them, what do you, what do you like to do? I love to help people. So, you know, that, that's not altruism. 
<laughs> helping people out of altruism or helping people because it makes them happy. Furthermore, the idea of helping people, let's unpack that a little bit too. What are you helping people to do? Well, you are helping people to become more happy <laughs> than what they are. Otherwise, you're not really helping people at all. You're hurting people. You're trying to give them food so that they have enough food. You're trying to give them, you know, you're trying to give kids Christmas presents. Why are you trying to give kids little toy trucks? Toy trucks do not make kids grow. It doesn't make their bones stronger. It makes them happy. You're, we're all trying to pursue happiness, the things that make us happy and the things that makes the maximum number of people around us happy. Happiness is the goal. Even the Christian that walks around uh, lemon-pushed all day for all of their life, uh, suffering for the Lord, even that person is, look, is doing it so that they will ultimately be happy. They have this idea in their mind that if they go through 80 or 90 years of suffering here on earth, they will have an eternity of happiness. And so at the end of the day, it's still all about pursuing happiness, our happiness, not God's happiness or God's idea for our happiness. We are pursuing our happiness. And I encourage people to embrace the fact that you are pursuing, you are hedonistically pursuing your happiness. And that doesn't mean that you're doing it without regard to other people. We are social beings. We cannot achieve the best of our happiness without recognizing uh, the fact that we are social beings. So I don't, I don't want to get too far off into uh, that debate. I just, I just want to impart that happiness does matter. And in the grand scheme of things, what Christians have told me, um, especially lately, but usually mostly uh, for, for most of my religious life, that God is not interested in our happiness. The gospel is not about our happiness. It's about uh, our salvation, not our happiness. Uh, in fact, God would say it's better to be maimed and enter heaven maimed than to enter hell as a whole person. So, you know, our temporal happiness may be not the top priority uh, for this God. And sure, I'm granting that this God is real. I'm granting that this God loves us. I'm granting that this God knows more about stuff than we do. But at the end of the day, his idea of my happiness is not my idea of my happiness. And if I am a free creature, I get to choose my idea, my idea of my happiness. And for that reason, uh, along with others that I've mentioned in the article, I am not epistemically bound to listen to what this God has to say to me. I'm sure that we'll have uh, more on that, but I will turn it over to Dale for a rebuttal. Dale. Okay, so I'll, I'll leave out the three specific points until you make that point. No, no, no. Actually, I'm counting on you to make the specific point, so it's okay. Okay. Um, all right, so in that case, this might be a bit long, so I'll, I'll start with the in general. So I'm, I'm um, letting you make part of my argument simply because I know that your rebuttal was based on part of that argument, so rather than go over it uh, twice, I'm, I'm letting you make it. I thought that you uh, represented it fairly enough in the write-up, so... Perfect. Okay, all right, so... In, in the first place, um, I saw this as, this issue uh, as a very important one because, uh, you know, it, it does describe why we should care about studying about religions. Why, why do we have an epistemic duty to be what I call a real seeker uh, or an honest seeker, whatever you want to call it? 
Um, and it reminded me of a question that one of our listeners, Richard Morgan, asked me once about regarding the pursuit of truth. Um, so in, in the first place, I admitted to him that on, look, on atheism, we don't have any epistemic duties whatsoever, in my opinion. Um, but likewise, um, even with regards to religions, pretend Buddhism is true. Um, I don't really care. I don't, I don't like the end goal that that religion sets up. And therefore, you know, I, so long as I'm convinced that my understanding of what nirvana is, the ultimate goal, the, the ultimate purpose uh, for human beings, and that's what it offers, okay, fine, poof, I, I don't want that, so I'm not going to waste my life following the precepts of Buddhism or, or trying to figure out if Buddhism is true. So let me cut in right there and say okay. 100% agree. Excellent point. Couldn't have said it better myself. I don't like the end goal of Christianity. Cool. So that's what we're gonna gonna get into, whether you should yes. like like the end goal of Christianity or not. So so exactly, David, it picks up on exactly that's what this debate is about. Is well, is Christianity like Buddhism? Should should we uh, figure out uh, if it's true or not? Is is the goal that it lays out worthy of going after? So in, in the first place, Dave, David mentions about look, one of our main motivations. Uh, for following a religion. A religion is pertaining to knowledge or wisdom about the nature of ultimate reality and our own ultimate purpose within that ultimate reality, you know, how, what it is and how to achieve it. Um, this is what some philosophers like Keith Ward have called the iconic vision. Um, so one of the main motivations, so another uh, book that was influential by Richard Swinburne is called Faith and Reason. And he lays out there, look, there are three basic reasons why people follow a religion or, or try to figure out if it's true and then follow it. Um, so one is to achieve within a Christian context, our, our ultimate purpose or a salvation. Um, the other is to help others to achieve their ultimate purpose and or salvation. Um, and then the third is to pay any homage to any deities or the due respect for, you know, the deities that create or, or God that creates you. Um, now it's the first one that, uh, David goes after and partly the second one. So David says, look, salvation, uh, that's the main goal of, of uh, Christianity. That has nothing to do with happiness. Well, actually it, it does. Ha salvation entails happiness. Happiness is one of the goals of Christianity. That's what I've always been taught. Uh, I'm going to be happy. I need you to make that connection better. Salvation and happiness, uh, they sound good together like uh, chocolate and peanut butter, but they are in fact not the same. You can, you know, you can save a person from themselves and lock them in a room and keep them fed and nourished and live for a long time. They've been saved, but they're not happy. So right. I, I would in fact decouple the idea of salvation and happiness. Okay, so I, in one sense, David is right. So here, here's my next point that I was about to get to. But mere happiness, this is what I, I'm going to call it, mere happiness, isn't in and, in and of itself good enough because there can be a serial rapist that David alludes to. He's happy when he's raping innocent women or, you know, uh, I'm sure it made Hitler happy when he slaughtered all those Jews. Um, so obviously mere happiness um, isn't in and of itself good enough. And this is what I think religions do well. 
we achieve through salvation, we're achieving a true happiness. Now, what the heck is that? Obviously, within human beings, we have this deep ingrained longing to achieve a, a deep well-being, um, which provides an enduring, perhaps everlasting even, I would, I would argue, and worthwhile happiness, a happiness that has value. And this is what Christians typically call bliss, or uh, in the Latin, beatitudo. Um, so this is what true happiness is, and this is it has an ultimate value or, or virtue to it, um, and it's enduring. So this is what I think Christian salvation offers to us and why we should want to seek out whether Christianity is true. We want to attain this goal, and as David says, we all have this longing for, for happiness, but it, it's obviously not this mere happiness. It's something more, I think. This happiness or bliss, this true happiness, is one of the reasons why we want to follow Christianity or a given religion in general, since I'm, I'm just generalizing at this point. Um, now, where does following a religion come into play? And this is what I'm calling the virtue ethics factor, because, um, or, or just virtue in general. So what does it mean for a happiness to be enduring and to be virtuous? Um, so basically, in, in virtue ethics, this is um, works in conjunction with what's called deontological ethics. And the deontological ethics are, are things like rule-based ethics, like thou shalt not do this or thou shalt not do that. Um, and it, it's not just a matter of you know, oh, okay, uh, this is a rule, I'm going to follow it. But the virtue ethics sort of handles, well, why are we following this? And it, it focuses in on the character um, of the person. So religions give various precepts of, you know, things you should do in order to achieve this bliss, in order to achieve this uh, blissful happiness or, or, you know, the end state in a Christian context, that's salvation. Um and basically, virtue ethics looks at, uh, you know, how you can develop characters that are fit for that purpose. Um, so, yeah, and, and obviously, so it's kind of like what Plato said. Uh, how does someone become brave, for example? Well, it's by doing brave things. And eventually, that becomes so ingrained into us that it becomes a habit. Um, but the point is, well, is that, is the character traits that we're, instantiating worth it and that's where the virtue part comes in virtues refer to any habits of, of excellence or beneficial tendencies or skill dispositions uh, that enable a person to realize proper human flourishing and well-being according to the ideal human nature um, interesting okay well what what does that mean though the ideal human nature um, so this is where I'm going to start getting into the specific Christianity stuff, because basically Christianity is worthy of pursuing because salvation offers you bliss, this true happiness state, and provides certain rules by which you can develop what I call a heaven-fit character so that you're suitable for heaven. Now, obviously, as David uh, concedes in this, the Christian God is our creator. He made us. He knows what is essential for human flourishing and well-being. And he knows that by doing this and instantiating this, these certain character traits, um, this will, will lead to human happiness or bliss. So 
Um, basically, David provides three three reasons as to why he thinks the Christian God in particular is not worthy of pursuing whether it's true or not. And the first one is related to this virtue ethics thing. He says, look, human nature is incompatible with Christian salvation or this Christian state of bliss. Um, and I, I just want to say, first of all, this is just completely nonsense. Again, because number one, the Christian God is the one who created us. He knows what is essential for us to flourish. He is all-knowing. Um, and I would even argue he is also nece he is necessarily the standard of good. So it's not like he's an evil God who would lie to us and tell us, you know, do this, and then he's chuckling behind the corner. Uh, no, he, he knows which properties are essential to human nature and what uh, actions or, or thoughts and that sort of thing will lead, what rules, let's say, uh, will lead to the best outcome uh, for the whole salvation experience uh, and how to get rid of this sin disease that we incorporated in the fall. Um, so that's that's his first reason. I, I would say it is compatible. Um, yeah, and then the second reason is, okay, God doesn't care about temporal happiness. Um, this is totally false. Um, actually, he does care about our temporal happiness. Happiness is better everywhere, especially this blissful happiness. Um, and it's not the case that we only achieve this in the afterlife. The Bible itself, the New Testament, and David will probably know which verse it is better than me, but it does say, look, we can experience the kingdom of God is here on earth right now. Once Jesus left, we, we experience in part this heavenly bliss right now. Now, it's not always the case. We're not going to be totally free from the effects of sin or suffering. And we do, we can experience a, a blissful happiness despite that. Um, but yeah, it, you know, God created marriage that, or, or having children. That's a temporal happiness that is worthwhile and something good to achieve. Ha uh, working at a job that's meaningful and, and uh, contributing to the society and uh, neighborhood in which you live or that sort of thing, that's good. Giving to charity. The, these are temporal happinesses that God says, yeah, go for it. You know, the Christian God is world-affirming. Uh, he created various temporal pleasures and delights. I mean, looking at a sun, a beautiful sunset, or listening to a, a piece of good of a, uh, I don't want to say Christmas music, but because <laughs> I know David's not a fan of Christmas, but listening to a piece of music that that brings joy to you, or, or watching a movie. These are all temporal joys that the Christian God. Okay, so let me just wants. butt in. None of those things that you mentioned are things from God. Those are those are things that happen. I mean, you mentioned a good job. You know, I don't want a good job. I, you know, what brings me joy is not needing a job. I have a job because I have to eat and I have to feed people. So that's, you know, that's, that's just making lemonade out of lemons uh, to say that, you know, the job is what makes you happy. Um, and, you know, as far as having children, having children is not what makes us happy. Having children is what pop continues the species. Okay, that's not some gift of God to make us happy. In fact, one could say that uh, the God of the Bible did what he could to make it as miserable as possible. So, I, and same for jobs, for that matter. So, I, I think that your attempt to give God credit for our temporal happiness is, is stretching 
too far for me to allow you to continue uninterrupted. Go ahead. Okay. Uh, so wow. So okay. Uh, yeah. There there are people that don't take joy in everything. That's why there's a variety of different types of joys. Maybe you don't like. Uh, maybe you don't like certain types of movies, so you can see other types or whatever. So the fact that God is, didn't give me my, that, though. Uh, well, God, uh, in a sense, God Spielberg gave, us... gave me that. Thanks, Spielberg. And, I, I don't yeah. thank God for my favorite movies or, or my ability to enjoy them. Right. But God created everything in the, in the sense okay. that he created the world and, and that sort of thing. Right. He created Spielberg's soul. Yes. Um, so, sure, so, you, you're not actually making an argument at, at this point. You're just claiming things that, and, and daring me to challenge them. So I am taking the challenge. But, but I don't want to take God, too much time point, in it. The point that you made in your blog is that God doesn't care. He does care. He created a world but, in which but he doesn't. But he didn't do any of those things that you're talking about. So if those things that you're talking about are examples of of caring, God doesn't get the credit for those. And you haven't you haven't given examples of things that God would actually get the credit for. It's not about whether he did it or not, directly or not, or he used instruments. You said he doesn't care, but he he does care. He allows for a world in which such joys are possible. I don't but, think that he it, cares that I see my favorite movies because I missed a lot of movies this year in the theater that I cared to see. Um, well, how do you know, know he doesn't care? About well, it? Maybe because he, he didn't give me the resources to go see him. So I don't, I don't actually think he cares about that. He doesn't work in that way, right? You just said he doesn't work directly in that way. He works through secondary causes. So. I, I don't think I said that, but uh, sure. Oh, uh, but but what you're what you're saying okay. is, you know, we can just you just give credit to God for any good thing that happens, whether He had anything to do with it or not, and whether you know that He had anything to do with it, or whether you know how He had anything to do with it, and so that just kind of becomes meaningless. It's meaningless Christian dribble. Put it so I I like the way I put it though. Your point is that God doesn't care. We don't. We can't establish He doesn't care. Well, you can't establish he that He does either. This is my point because there are plenty of people who were there. In fact, I would argue there's probably more people walking around in misery than happiness, uh, in abject poverty. Uh, and you know, Jesus' response to that was, "The poor will always be with us. Uh, let this woman okay. pour this expensive wine on my feet." Yeah, and he uh, so, cared about. Well, okay, he care. I don't know what care means in that in that setting. So you can say he cared, and I I just say meaningless Christian dribble. You're not defining care in any way that I understand care. No, it's exactly the way you understand care. When when no, Jesus I promise it's not how I understand care. When Jesus was weeping over the city of Jerusalem, he cared that they were rejecting him and were going to suffer the, the consequences well, of the okay. destruction. Okay, he cared that they were rejecting him. So everybody feels bad when they are personally being rejected. I don't care. I'm not here to solve Jesus' personal problems of acceptance and rejection. That has nothing to do with me. Okay, nobody cared for them is what I'm saying. And, well, but, but you say but, he cared for them. It, but when you say that, you say he cared about himself being rejected. And, you know, if, if I were to give that story any credence, I would agree with that. Uh, that he cared for them. No, he didn't care for them enough to not send them to hell. Uh, he didn't care for them. Um, the, you know, there's so I don't want to get I don't want to get too far into that story. But that very story that you're mentioning um, 
is when Jesus was saying, you know, if the cities like Tyre and Sidon had the signs that you had, they would have been saved. The question that the Christian ought to ask is, why the hell didn't you give Tyre and Sidon those signs then if you knew that they would be saved? He didn't want them to be saved. He gave them exactly the signs, exactly enough signs so that they wouldn't believe, but not enough that they would. He knew exactly what would cause them to be saved, and he he withheld that. Right, Uh, because he wants to save. You're giving me Molinism. Remember your concession. So because he wants to save as many souls as possible in in a world where... You well, it's, I'm not playing the game. Like, you, <laughs> if Molinism is true, um, then this explains why he didn't do that. Because ultimately, it would lead to more s- souls being saved, and that he does care about saving. I will not argue with that. I think that in <laughs> in this in this instance, once you once you uh, start leaning on that particular type of Molinism, uh, I, I I think that your argument has lost its teeth. Um, if it, if it had any, I, I, I think that that kind of kills it. But at, at any rate, I'm, I'm perfectly happy to leave people with your impression of that. They understand why I disagree with it. Um, and well, here, so I will let you finish your point. Yeah. So here, here's your last point. And, and this is, it's a good segue because this is what you're actually saying. God is selfish. He only cares about his own glory and, having a bunch of uh, glorified guest men up in heaven who will serve and worship him, you know, um, and that sort of thing. And this is what sort of David hints to. And and this is not true biblically. Again, it's a concession that the Bible is divine revelation here. Uh, Sure, there are verses where it talks about people singing um, and worshiping God. Uh, First of all, there's nothing wrong with that. God is a being that's worthy of worship. Um, and worship is for us. It's not for God. It helps us. It's part of our human nature, which God created and brings us joy to worship that which is worthy, uh, supremely worthy of, of being appreciated. Um, you know, I, I make no bones about uh, thanking or praising someone who holds open a door. I, I thank them in a way that's appropriate for what they did to me. God is the creator of the and sustainer of the universe. He created my soul. He created this world, all these joys for me to establish and ultimately led to my salvation because this objection is up in heaven. Uh, once we're once we're saved, we're for eternity. We're just going to be bowing and worshiping and that sort of thing uh, as though we're mindless robots. But that first of all, these these things that we're doing are good for human beings, for the human nature. Okay, first of all, how do you know that's not what we'd be doing? It, I, I, no, there are verses that we will be doing that, but that's not all that we'll be doing. Well, how do you know? Because the Bible tells us, and you really? granted me the Bible. So, for, sure. for so tell, me, tell me what the heaven experience is, because one of the, one of the reasons I don't care about the end goal in the same way that you don't care about Nirvana is because no Christian has ever, and this is for the time that I was a Christian and and beyond, has ever described to me any type of heaven that seems compatible with the Bible that I would want to be in for eternity. I have never heard that description. And the alternative is, well, and if you don't like heaven, there's hell, so at least you get to escape from that. That's right. that's what we get. No one. There is, in fact, no uh, complete 
description right. of the quote unquote reward. This description was not given in Genesis with Adam and Eve, which I make this point repeatedly. If there was going to be a time when God says, look, here's the plan. Uh, the, the end game is that you're going to live with me for eternity or you're going to burn in hell for eternity. That would have been the time to say so. He did not say it. There has never been any kind of description in the Bible that tells me what on earth I'm working for. It's just give me your life, sacrifice your life for me, and I promise the prize will be worth it. And besides, you know, not doing it is, is going to be hell. So that's not good enough. I am not, I am not convinced of this great prize that awaits because this God that you talk about doesn't bother telling me what it is. Okay, so I would say that's partially correct and partially not. Uh, there are many things we know about it from the Bible, but it's not exhaustive. And we it is true uh, that there's a lot about heaven that we don't know. That. That's fine. What we do know is sufficient. No, it's but, sufficient but, to you. It's not sufficient for me. Okay, but so listen, the Bible's claims about itself. Let's start with that. Let's start that. The, the Bible itself claims heaven is a place you would want to attain, right? It, it's saying God is saying, look, this will be good for you to be here. Where does it say that? Well, it doesn't say it in those words, but I'm saying it says there are verses to that effect. Okay, and, and I'm, I'm trying to really avoid going going into the Bible, and I don't even like asking you where does it say that, because the whole conceit of this series is why you shouldn't even care <laughs> about yeah. what the Bible well, says. So I don't, I don't want to make my point on the Bible, but I, for this case, what you, what you are saying is that the Bible makes claims about this prize that we're supposed to care about. And I am telling you that I do not know of any biblical passage that even makes a claim that I should care about. That you should and, care about? Yes, and so, I'm, and so, and so in, it does, it, only in that limited sense, mm -hmm. I'm asking you to show me this right. claim in the Bible that I've missed that I'm supposed to care about because I don't know what it is. Okay, so here, here's one for, here's a few. So in the first place, we know biblically that it's devoid of negative qualities. It's devoid of pain and suffering. You won't be crying. These come from Revelation, chapter 7, verses 15 to no 17. No tears in heaven. So you, you think that's literal? Because I never know what in a Bible is a description that's literal or not. So are, are the streets of gold literal? I think it means you won't be sad. Well, wait a minute. You think it means... You, you well, don't actually have an, you don't actually have any idea what that means. And the reason I know that you don't have any idea that is what it means. Then okay, <laughs> okay, but I'm, I'm gonna I'm gonna just tell you briefly why I don't think you uh, know what it means. Uh, because what it what it means is that your loved ones who aren't in heaven uh, and are burning in hell or whatever they're doing in this uh, this dungeonous place of doom, mm -hmm. you're not gonna care about. Neither you're not going to care about it, which means that you have been substantially altered in a way that you're no longer yourself, or you're not going to know about it, which means that critical information is being held from you. Um, so I don't, the idea that you will not be sad knowing that the person you spent 90 years of your life with isn't with you, uh, that, yeah. if, if that doesn't make you sad, then I don't understand what 
it's t what sadness means in that uh, case. And by the way, I don't want to be altered to a, a state that, that doesn't make me sad. And I don't want to forget the people that were in my life. So the, another alternative is people in your life, well, maybe you just forget them when you're in heaven. Well, if you forget them no. when you're in heaven, then you're not you anymore. Yeah. So, so yeah, I have answered that before or whatever. So it, it's you don't forget and you don't stop caring in heaven. You do care about these people. You wish they were in heaven, but it, you're not sad because but they are in so the place that good. they... Heaven is so good. Just pass another margarita. They they chose to be in hell. Poor Uncle Benny. I don't believe in a torture chamber model for Poor hell. Poor Uncle Benny. I mean, he was a nice guy. He just didn't buy into uh, the, the Christian story that he was being constantly inundated with the fundies. And he is missing out on this poor guy. Pass another margarita. Why these are good? <laughs> well, but this like I'm not I'm not sad over you. I care about you. I wish and I hope that you'll choose to go to heaven. But if you don't, as, as you're, this whole thing is you trying to prove you're not going to go there. I don't care if it's true. I, it's not a worthy goal for me. Okay, I would but you're, you're, you're trying to describe heaven to me, and you're saying that there are no tears in heaven. And I'm trying to tell you that if that is true, despite the fact that you've got people uh, you love that aren't there, and, and there's no sadness or misery over that, I don't want to go there. Have you ever heard the saying, if you love people, you got to let them go? Uh, look, I don't. I don't listen to a lot of country music these days. That sounds like that sounds like a country a song that I don't want to hear. But basically, it's yeah. It's okay. I, I respect it. It's the way I feel right now towards you. I like, understand that, but I don't want to go to the heaven you want to go to. I I ask you to describe something well, about heaven in the Bible that I should care about, and you haven't done it. If you were well, saying that I should care that there are no tears in heaven, that there's no sadness, that I'm not going to be sad because I'm there and my wife, who was beside me every day and who made me coffee every morning without being asked, if she's not going to be there and I'm not going to be sad, screw your heaven. I don't want any part of that. Okay. Uh, so that's your, that's you, that's, that's what I'm saying. That's and that's what I'm saying. Might, there has never been a description of heaven in the Bible, in my Christianity, or my it's atheism that anyone has ever given me that made me want to go there. Well, David, I, I want to go there based, based on that. Plus, there's other stuff as well that we haven't even gotten to. Okay, you can't be in a glorified state. Jesus, in his resurrection body, gives us some information of what the afterlife will be like for us. We will have glorified, resurrected bodies, which apparently could be perhaps interdimensional, right? They so you have superpowers. Water. Sorry? You have superpowers. That seems yeah. to be what it means to have a glorified body. Yeah. Do you, you have, have... So are you... you wait a minute, are you suggesting that our superpowers uh, in our heavenly bodies will be the same as Jesus' superpowers after his resurrection? Is Does the Bible say that? Yeah, yeah he's the first fruits. He's the first fruits of what's to come. We will have glorified bodies. This is Ephesians 2, 6, Romans chapter 8. Yeah, but it doesn't actually, it never actually says what glorified bodies are. Yeah, but we can look to Jesus as a signal. Right? Because his, his glorified body also had death wounds. I, I know that you know this. Um, you, don't, you don't need to be a Bible student for this. The man still had nail holes. <laughs> what if they were gone? What, what? I don't want that. 
<laughs> what if I die in a fire? I don't want that. What if I'm what if I'm accidentally beheaded? Am I gonna be walking around carrying my head? Look at my glorified body. Here I mean I don't want that. So yeah, obviously okay. that's well, not what it means. You don't know what that means. No, I I think we can read into you, he oh, is the okay, first you're reading priest. into stuff. This is again the uh, Bible not exactly telling us what the heck it's talking about. It's giving us reason to believe that we don't know what it's talking about because like I said, nobody wants a body with death wounds. Well, how do you know if you're not feeling any pain or anything like that? Maybe it doesn't matter what you Oh, really? Like. Really? Yeah. Maybe we should revisit our Halloween <laughs> special. <laughs> <laughs> Resurrection, the death wounds edition. I don't want that body. <laughs> okay, I'd be, I'd be happy with a version of this body well, with better knees. You're going to have that body. That could have just been. But you said that Jesus' body was indicative of what our body would be. You just said that. Now the reason yeah. you yeah. can say that and then change course is because you don't know what the heck you're talking about because the Bible doesn't say it doesn't. Say you're it making says this he is up. The first fruits. So therefore, you don't know we, what that means. I don't know what that means. Inference, right? You're in inferring. You will have new <laughs> capacities and abilities. But we don't know what that would be. See, you know, right. for all I know, my capacity and ability is I can show how I burned in the fire. Okay. Uh, now here's the collective aspect. You will be in fellowship with many people and with God, the Creator of the universe, forever. Is fellowship not a worthy goal? You just said it was because you would be missing people that you wouldn't be in fellowship with. So I assume you like having fellowship with family and yeah, friends. Yeah, but I would be having fellowship with people that God chose, not necessarily family and friends. Let's say I made it somehow and none of my family and friends did. Well, I'm not choosing my fellowship. You see, the thing that makes fellowship good here on earth is because I get to choose who I fellowship with. I don't get to choose that fellowship at all. And that may be a fellowship of people that I would never have wanted to fellowship with on earth. And most of the people I would have wanted fellowship with on earth may not be there. So I don't, I don't think that this fellowship argument is good. You talk about fellowship with family and friends. You're making a mighty big assumption that a person's family and friends are going to make it. Jesus I said that I didn't come to bring peace in the family, I but I come to bring a sword. Daughter pray. against mother, father against son, brother against sister. Yep. So <laughs> so being is, they're not going to make it. <laughs> and in their perfected state, you don't want to hang out with certain people in this world because of, of sin, right? Either your problem or something. I don't know. Let me tell you, I've got a brother who's pretty imperfect. And if I wanted to really go into some uh, autobiograph autobiographical stuff... Uh, you know, I think we can make a whole show of that, and uh, maybe I could even bring people to tears. I don't know. He's a person that I don't want to spend a lot of time with here on Earth, but he's still my brother, damn it. And I would like to think that if there's some form of eternity that I'm in, there's no way he's going to qualify for any of it. But I don't care if he qualifies. I'm going to bring him as a one plus, uh, or, or actually he's way down the list. He's not going to be the first, <laughs> the first one I bring in, but, um, you know, I, I want him there. And, um, if he's, if he's not there, if I don't get to control that list, then no, I, I don't like your version of fellowship. Even if he's not the best person in the world, screw your idea of who the best people are. 
So That's, you would drag him into having kicking and screaming. He's saying, "No, David, I don't. I don't want to go here. I want to run my own affairs." I want let to let me tell up. you, someone who facing the reality of hell would never say, "Oh no, David, I don't want to go to this place where I'm not on fire." Don't be ridiculous. Okay. No one so says I, that. No one I, says that. Yes, that is do. that. No, they don't. That is not a choice that anyone makes. The you only people did. who say it's no, the only that. people who say that are the people who don't know what the consequences are. Now, if you're telling me that there's a hell and it's as poorly defined as heaven, I don't believe in hell any more than heaven. And so I say, yeah, I don't want to go to this heaven. It sounds stupid. But if there actually is a hell, I am not choosing hell. I simply wasn't informed properly. That's not true in your No, case. it is true. It sad. is very true in my case. I am not informed of a hell properly. I don't believe that there's a hell. Everything that I've heard about a hell sounds like a stupid story to scare children. Why should I believe that? If that mm-hmm. turns out to be true, what if the boogeyman turns out to be true? You know what? Yeah, that so. could turn out to be true. You didn't believe it. Oh, well, I guess you were inviting the boogeyman, fool. No, that's a ridiculous argument. Nobody invites the boogeyman. No one wants to go to a burning hell. Don't be silly. Okay, so that's not true. You, I, I can find posts by you where you've said that. Pretend it's true. You said you even believed it was true and were scared, but you still were going to make that decision to go to hell. Remember in No, said- <laughs> no, I have never said I would make a decision to go to hell. I would make a decision not to go to heaven if there was oh. a choice to not go to heaven. No one says they want to go to hell. You are, you are truly misunderstanding the, the non-believer in their motivations. And this is part of this Christian dichotomy. There's a hell, uh, there's a heaven, there must be a hell. And if you don't want to go to one, then you must want to go to the other. That's foolishness. That's so stupid. And Christians should quit saying that. And Tara, this one's for you. You are absolutely right. It is absolutely immoral for a Christian to sit there and say, oh, well, you wanted to go to hell. God let you go to hell because you wanted to fuck this God. Can I say that on this no. show? It's, um, well, <laughs> I'm don't, but... Okay, all right, I'm going to just edit that out. Edit okay. it. Okay, go ahead. Um, yeah, okay. Um, so, so yeah, uh, Tara is absolutely wrong. You are wrong. You do choose to go to hell. Uh, remember, you're, you're conceding the Christian Bible is correct here. Now, I don't believe in the torture chamber model of hell, which would take some of the sting out of what you're trying to, the point you're trying to establish. Mm. Um, so I, I don't, I think it's talking about um, the fact that we, it's a quarantine zone. We would choose, you have the choice, heaven or hell, that's it. Um, hell is consistent, okay, you, God is no longer relationally present with you. You're on your own. You have your will and your way. And because of you guys continue on in your sin disease, you turn that quarantine zone into hell. If sin is just left to unmitigated for eternity, that's what makes it hell. Honestly, guys- that sounds a lot like New York. And I love New York. So I would <laughs> I would just stay yeah, here. Thanks. Great. Great. So you would choose to go to hell. Then. I, would, I would choose to stay here. <laughs> okay. But... I would just caution you, remember, New York, over the course of eternity, getting continually worse and worse and worse in terms of sin. What makes so, you think it would get worse once you get rid of the Christians? <laughs> you, were, you were talking, you're talking about a, a better New York. 
So I would so love to give that a try. <laughs> okay, so thank you for proving my point. That, that's what I mean. Okay, I'll, well, I'll it, but you see, if you're, if you're saying that hell is simply the absence of God. Relational great, absence. Yeah. Great, fantastic. But uh, when other people say that, uh, they're talking about something very different. And I am not, in fact, inviting hell upon myself uh, mm-hmm. as, as they define hell. Uh, mm-hmm. I am simply in, uh, inviting an absence from this miserable place described as heaven. Now, if heaven's not a miserable place, Christians and the Bible do a lousy job of selling it. Worst sales job ever. Well, here's another, here's another thing. Ephesians 2, 7 talks about our continued growth. This is for Sarah because she was saying that, oh, into, you know, an, an appreciation. One of the virtues I was saying for character traits is an appreciation for pursuing truth, not just achieving truth, but pursuing it and at- obtaining it uh, and appreciating. That's the character trait, appreciating the, the obtaining of truth. Um, and the Bible tells us that we will be have, experiencing continued growth. Well, but, but can't, can't we experience that without, uh, uh, without the heaven too? You know, if heaven is just New York without Christians, uh, can't we also continue to grow there? Not, not in a worthwhile way. Oh, wait, whoa, whoa, whoa. Who defines God, worse? Who defines worthwhile? God does. God. Well, is but I, but we've gotten standard. rid of that bum. Sorry. So we've gotten rid of that bum. Remember. So who defines worthwhile? No, you haven't gotten rid of that. Just well, sure. Because because New York without Christians is hell. Remember. So he's not there to to tell us what worthwhile is. Oh. You don't so, get to define worthwhile in my afterlife without your God. Yeah, so he's relationally not present. That doesn't mean he's not still present. He oh, he's still good. He's still there, screwing around yeah, with stuff. Oh well, that is hell. Okay, <laughs> I'm sorry. I don't. I don't want to go there. He's ontologically present. Oh, oh man. Relational. <laughs> How about Arizona? Uh, I mean, Arizona. Nobody wants to go to Arizona. It's hot <laughs> as hell there. If can I have an afterlife in Arizona without God? Because the whole idea is I don't want that guy's idea of happiness, right? I mean, we're talking, you're talking about ultimate happiness with uh, an ultimate meaningfulness, whatever that means. These words actually don't mean anything to me. I don't know what you're talking about uh, when you're talking about an ultimate happiness. All I know about is happiness, as I understand it, as a temporal creature. Uh, and if it means something other than that, I, I don't... I don't know what that is. I'm not sure that I want any part of it. I can't say that I don't want any part of it. I just don't know what it is. So I don't see why I should care. Um, so it's, it includes temp. What if you're watching? You can be watching movies in heaven. Really? Why not? Why? Or maybe we can time travel. Wait, not wait a minute. Heaven has the movie channel. Sorry. Heaven why has the movie channel. So heaven that's is Vegas. Temp- if that's a temporal happiness. <laughs> <Yeah>, <laughs> If that's a temporal happiness, okay. why do you enjoy <laughs> all the, the all the Elvis personators you want, all the <laughs> all the crab salad? <laughs> why not? I mean, this is it's just a good thing. We won't need it, but maybe we could still enjoy it. Okay, well, sir, sure, that's fine. But it's at this point you have to understand that that's not a Bible thing. That just sounds like you're making stuff up to make it sound good. And well, it says, look, there's incomparable riches of his grace. And here's a. Okay, a I, I, I don't want the riches of his grace. I've seen the riches of his grace. <laughs> I don't, I'm not impressed with the riches of his grace. <laughs> okay, but God, getting to know God over eternity, learning new things and the mysteries of the universe, scientists get joy out of 
discovering new things. We'll be able to get to do that. I mean, oh, okay, it doesn't actually uh, say that you'll be learning new things about the mysteries of the universe. This is you editorializing again. You might be learning new things about heaven. <laughs> you know, that's so that's I don't I don't I don't buy your your editorializing that this somehow means uh, that you know scientists will be able to study in better laboratories and writers will be able to uh, you know they'll all have MacBook Pros and uh, you know the kids can watch The Simpsons and there will always be a new episode every time you turn on TV. I don't I don't buy that for a moment. That sounds like something made up. It doesn't sound like anything the Bible mm -hmm. talks about. And if once again, if this is what the Bible meant. It should have said so. It, it shouldn't leave you to sit here editorializing and creating those things, kind of head canoning no. those things into existence. So in the first place, so it's good. The, but the biblical data is underdeterminative. Determinative. So By underdeterminative, you mean it's not clear. The Bible doesn't say this. No, it's clear in what it tells us, but it's not exhaustive. It, I don't know if we're going to be watching TV shows or not. I'm just saying maybe we could be because that's that's a happiness that we could enjoy or something like that. Um, it is clear in the Bible that there will be incomparable riches and that it's going to be, Incom we're not just what, in heaven. What, what, we're not riches. Just, what, what kind of riches are we talking about? This, this is another yeah, one of those things. You remember earlier, I asked you flippantly. Now I'm asking you seriously, do you believe there'll be streets of gold? So I'm going to ask you this first, because I, I didn't want to avoid, you said that we'll just be up in heaven. There will be no physical stuff and that sort of thing. You, understand, you know that the Bible does say there will be a new heavens and a new earth, new creation. Right, creation and I don't know, and, and, I'm, and I'm telling you that that's apocalyptic language, and I do not know what it means. I can tell you what many Jewish and Christian scholars uh, might think that those things mean, but that does not, in fact, say in a literal sense that, uh, you know, there will be another world like this world. Um, so we don't, we don't actually know what that means. And, and I would contend that you are not scholar enough to, to weigh in on that. I think I am. I've, I've, well, I'm not a scholar, but I've read enough scholarship to know uh, that it, it's not just an apocalyptic. I'm not just quoting Revelation or Daniel here. There, it's throughout the entire Old Testament and but, Bible. But, that, but the quotes are apocalyptic themselves. And so just because someone quotes an apocalyptic quote in a book that is not necessarily apocalyptic doesn't mean that it stops being apocalyptic language. It doesn't stop being apocalyptic language. No, but it's not. There, there are kind of like the moon turns to blood. The 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 sun, the, the stars fall. The moon turns to blood. Um, this is apocalyptic language. It does not yeah. mean that this will literally happen. You can see that in the mouth of Jesus. Uh, here I am using the Bible to make a, a point, which is something that I don't want to do. But I, I mean, I'm trying to help you understand something about literature here, in particular this piece of literature. Uh, that is apocalyptic language every time it's used. It never means uh, that the, the Swiss cheese mood starts bleeding. It's that, never what it means. Yeah, so the passage in Joel is apocalyptic language, but not everything that talks about the... Just because it's talking about the end of the world doesn't make it apocalyptic language. You, you like to scold me for not knowing literature, so you understand better, better than me how they identify different genres, and there are different genres that speak about stuff that will be happening in the end of the world. Yeah, but what I'm saying is these are popular phrases from apocalyptic uh, works that, that people reference in the Bible. 
So it doesn't matter if Paul, for instance, who is not necessarily writing apocalyptically, says the you know the moon will turn to blood and the stars will fall or something like that. He's he's not suddenly speaking literally here. He's referencing popular apocalyptic uh, uh, images. And the same thing is true with things like Streets of Gold um, and yeah, whatever whatever the other thing is that, that you mentioned. So just, just because, uh, oh yeah, New Heaven and New, new Earth. You were, you were taking something that was originally very apocalyptic and poetic and you're literalizing it and you're saying, you see, we know that this will literally happen. You were using that very wrong. You can't do that. That's not, in fact, what that means or how it's... Uh, to be used now that's not to say that that won't happen i'm not suggesting that that won't happen somehow and this is proof of it i'm just saying that that is not proof that it will happen you're reading it wrong so i i'm not actually that i understand you're trying to say there's uh genres within genres do happen but again there, there's ways to identify them. and it's not the case this notion of a new creation or creation itself being redeemed from this sin curse is throughout the Bible. I mean, N.T. Wright has, um, I think it's in his book, Paul and the Faithfulness of, Faithfulness of God that I have or something. So this is a mainstream theme that goes across genres throughout from the book of Genesis all the way up until Paul and Paul then capitalizes on it. Um, I get that revelation, the streets of gold. So you, you did ask me about that. Yes, I, I would agree with you that, that that is obviously the apocalyptic genre. Um, I don't necessarily, that isn't clear. I don't know if there's going to be streets of literal gold or if that's that's probably just an image. Just like Joel, Joel chapter, uh, the book of Joel, uh, that quote in Acts chapter, chapter 2, where Peter gives his first sermon summary. Um, Obviously, that stuff didn't happen. The moon didn't turn to literal blood and and all of that. That is apocalyptic language within the genre that is historical stuff, uh, the his, historical genre uh, or biographical genre. So I, I agree, but it's it's I also disagree that if you're just saying every time it talks about creation being renewed that's that's just apocalyptic no it's not there's different genres that speak of that topic uh that's that's my only point there okay and maybe one day we'll swing around and cover that but i would i would just say i think you're wrong there um you know well one of the one of the ways that i would uh back up the fact that I think you're wrong, you're wrong, or at least that it's a far more complicated issue than you seem to think it is, is that within the Christian faith itself, different Christians have different interpretations of that. And so some Christians are looking forward to a time where the entire creation is erased. God God puts the whole big eraser to it because it's been messed up, and he's going to fix it by erasing it, and there's going to be a new heaven and a new earth. And by the way, that new heaven, what is that heaven? Does that mean the place where God dwells now? Well, you know, that was messed up too, wasn't it? War in heaven and all that. Or is that a different uh, idea of heaven? So they're not entirely sure of that. But other Christians would say, oh, no, God made uh, creation perfectly. He's not throwing it away. It's not going to be erased. No, it'll be, it'll be cleansed. You know, there'll be a good spring cleaning 
but it's not going to be a new heaven as in, you know, some, some new thing made. So I would say even within the Christian explanation of this passage, there is great confusion among scholars mm-hmm. on what this means. Uh, and so, uh, yeah, I, I think that you're, you're reading a thing way more simplistically than you have a right to. Well, I would, yeah, I, w- I would agree with you. So I, I get, uh, I think it's either first or second Peter where it's talking about, you know, fire will completely destroy. And they take that in the sense that the Stoics believed in, you know, a great fire will just completely erase the universe. And that's, I, I don't believe that's what the Bible says. I, I more lean towards anti rights type of view where it's a renewing of creation um, and it's a new era that's starting and that sort of thing rather than like, stop period brand new universe and and that kind of thing right you believe in but the spring the, cleaning versus the uh re uh, the the new buildings yeah new I, I guess that's a good way to yeah but, but regardless of who's right let's pretend I'm but, you, wrong. but you understand those are diametrically opposed views they're not they're not they're compatible exclusive. Yeah. yes but but who cares how we get there the the main point pretend i'm wrong okay i don't care Fine, it's brand new buildings. The point is we have a new creation that's we're able to live in as in our glorified resurrected bodies, free from sin, free from pain and suffering and that sort of thing. So who oh, cares how we I, get there? I do think it does matter. Um, it matters yeah. a great deal. Uh, so I, once again, I could, I could talk a little bit about eschatology and the different uh, types of ways it could end and why it matters. That takes us a little bit too far afield, uh, I think to stay, to to bring it back to the point that I was originally making, is that this idea of what our ultimate happiness is, is not in our control. It's it's in God's control. It's God's idea of our ultimate happiness. Mm -hmm. And already you have described heaven in two or three ways where I can honestly say that doesn't sound good to me. Now, if that's the ultimate if that's the ultimate happiness, the thing, it, remember, I am trying to grant you most of this, even though I'm yeah. arguing with you. I am trying to grant you most of this. If most of what you say is true, you have, you have presented to me an end game where I don't want to play. Because I don't, I don't want that. That is not my sense of happiness. And I'm thinking, well, if that's the sense of happiness that God's going to somehow enforce on me or that I've got to kind of develop, then I care about this as much as you care about nirvana. Okay. Okay. So, yeah, and I th- I think this is for listeners. This is the fundamental point to to focus on is is do you sort of like Abraham, Abraham's example? Do you submit to God, which in this blog we're granting exists, the Christian God is true, and that sort of thing, and He's telling you, look, salvation is good for you. I designed you. I know what's good for you. Uh, do what I say, and you'll achieve that end. Uh, or do you sort of say no? You know what? No, I'm gonna do. I'm gonna do it my way. I I know what's best for me, not you, God, uh, not you, Mister Omniscient and Omnibenevolent God, who's who designed me and is doing what's in my best interest. Um, I think I know what's best for me. So here's I'm trying to think of an example. He, here's one thing. So let's pretend you like smoking uh, cigarettes. Um, we all know how bad it is for you. And God says, stop smoking cigarettes. It's bad for you. Um, would you agree that the smoker should listen, should submit and listen to God? He knows 
pretend this is before we knew that smoking was bad for you and all this all the scientific evidence backing it up pretend this is the 1920s or something and god comes down to you and says stop smoking do you say no i'm gonna keep doing i like doing it it makes me happy i'm gonna keep doing it or do you say well i i submit to your god you you're you are all knowing you are all good i trust you i put my faith in you and i'm gonna throw the cigarettes away no i say who do you think you are old man Oh, okay. okay. Uh, no, honestly, because it, at that your scenario, the one that you just laid out, is that we yeah. don't know that smoking is bad. Yeah. Now, God doesn't come down and give us more information about smoking in your scenario. He just says, stop doing it, like like some kind yeah. of authoritarian bully. Screw that guy. Uh, okay. Maybe he just doesn't like the smell of smoke. Okay, well, I do like the smell of smoke. Why should I stop smoking? Give me a reason and let me as a free being choose based on the best information to stop smoking. Now, if he, if he wants me to stop smoking, that's how he would approach me. But he wouldn't just come and tell me to stop smoking because I am God. <laughs> yeah, well, I, I deliberately made it that way because that is what we have kind of comparable with the Bible. Like we don't get yes, to see it is, which is kind um, of, which is kind of awful. So if, I, if God had this superior information, one would think that he would want to provide it in a way that people would want to accept. And speaking of, <clears throat> speaking of this is a point that I wanted to make earlier. So I want to hit it, run back to it and hit it while it's in my mind. God could have made us so that we enjoyed the, the things that he enjoys, right? So, uh, you know, I might have a kid who ends up loving olives and then I would have to buy olives in my house and, and I would curse every time I go to the store because I hate those things. I hate them. They should die. They're eyeballs. Stop eating olives, people. If an olive is on my pizza, I, and I tell them, I tell them this one, <laughs> go to a pizzeria, Look, don't put olives on my pizza. If it, don't don't put them on and then think that you're going to pick them off later. You will make me a new pizza. I don't want a pizza where olives have been picked off. I don't want the pizza made on the same table where olives were sitting. So I despise olives. That said, I might end up with a kid that loves olives. I don't have any choice. All right, I don't I don't have the power to do designer DNA and make sure that my kid hates the things that I hate. But God does. And he, if he really hates smoking, he could just make us where smoking is, is repellent to us. It, it's a revulsion. There are other things that are naturally uh, repulsive to us. Smoking could be one of those things. So if God actually cared that we not smoke, then he could have made us that way. No, he just wants to be a jerk uh, and be the authoritarian who makes us not smoke. For, for bad reasons. He's not going to tell us the good reasons why we shouldn't smoke. We should just not smoke because he said so. He's God, he made us, and he can unmake us. Screw that guy. Did I say that already? Uh, that's but, that's yeah. absolutely the wrong approach if you actually care about what someone does. Okay, so a couple of things. Um, shoot. Oh, yeah. So in the first place, no, God didn't make us with a proclivity to smoke. That that comes of the Bible, which we're granting is true in this case, tells us what happened. There was the fall. And this is what is the cause of all the negative 
desires or desires that yeah, God but, designed okay, within but us. Yeah, the Bible also tells mm-hmm. us that the fall uh, is a is a um, design flaw by the designer. So, I'm, you know, if we're going to take the Bible story literally and uh, seriously, uh, God made that garden and he didn't put a fence to keep out the... Um, the bad guys. So I can I use a kind of a crude example, seriously, uh, not jokingly. Um, yeah. When I write, uh, I will use this example, and so I, I want to take all of the all of the polemic out of my tone here. Uh, so, but it's but it is actually how I think of the the Genesis story. Uh, the garden was a playpen for babies. The devil's a pedophile. God did not keep out the pedophiles. And now the pedophiles have, uh, let's say, ruined the children in the playpen, and now they have different desires than what they would have naturally grown up with, and they are blamed for, for the way they are now. It was God that made a playpen, open to pedophiles, and he didn't protect them. Screw that guy. Um, but you know, I uh, I'm I don't want to get too too much into some of my other reasons. But uh, yeah, so you can't get God off the hook by saying, "Oh yeah, we you know the fall." That's that's utterly meaningless to me because all the fall is is God let pedophiles in the playpen. Okay. Well, it's and, because, and then you're blaming the, your and then you're blaming the toddlers. So, sorry. Yeah, your analogy is so biased. Uh, like it, it's okay uh, to try and use it. The only thing that's different though is that somehow these babies aren't actually babies, and they have the choice. The pedophile can't touch them or do anything to them unless they will it or choose right. it. He's got to lure them sense. into the car with the puppies because yeah, they, they, because they're supposed to know better. Yeah, they, they should know better. They should have had... They, no, they didn't know better. The snake was smarter them. than them. The most cunning thing in the garden wasn't the woman or the man. It was the snake. Actually, no, it was God. And God told them, God gave them a rule. Don't eat this. Well, so it's, but it's but they weren't me. second or third. I mean, they were, they, were, they were at the bottom of the list. They were about as clever as the cucumber. No, they weren't. They were human beings with full cognitive faculties and rational faculties. They didn't have experiential knowledge of sin of good and evil in that sense like they had toddlers no that they had knowledge of good and evil no well look every six-year-old understands what the parent means when they say never get into the car with strangers they understand the words they understand the concept so if you're saying well they heard they heard the words they they knew what don't eat means uh, i i think you're just playing a game that doesn't ultimately work with, yeah, but they're uh, not that they're not six-year-olds in the first place. These were fully mature adults that had all the cognitive and rational faculties that you and I do as adults. They were told not to not to eat. They, they were had out. rational faculties, but they didn't have any deeper knowledge of of things. They had, as you say, no experiential knowledge. You're gonna surely die. Well, what does that mean? Uh, it, it reminds me of one of my favorite episodes of SpongeBob, if you'll allow me. Um, I don't know if you get SpongeBob in Canada. 
Um, uh, fortunately, we do. I've never seen it. <laughs> well, you should you should spend some time watching Sponge SpongeBob. Okay. Quality entertainment. Quality entertainment. You actually like it, or I just... love it. <laughs> I am a SpongeBob okay. fanboy. Okay. Um, but uh, so the squirrel, uh, I can't remember her name. So much of my fanboy creds. Um, she's uh, inviting uh, SpongeBob and um, and um, Star. The what's his name? Anyway, SpongeBob and his uh, sidekick to uh, to uh, hang with her at her house and uh, you know she's got this fish tank over her head so that she can breathe under the water is kind of the way that they express that but Spongebob does not understand what the surface means because he's never been to the surface and she says oh by the way uh, you know you'll you'll need some way to uh, breathe because we, we use air up there and Spongebob says I love air and she leaves and says what's air? <laughs> This is so, you know, it's it's one thing to say, oh yeah, they had full human capacity. Well, you know what, capacity is not equal to knowledge, and to to say you will surely die, I can imagine uh, Adam turning to this uh, one woman golem, mud golem, rib golem, and saying, uh, but but I didn't want to ask it because I didn't want to feel stupid. But what's die? Okay, so yeah, so here's my response, uh, and I, I think this is totally—it's uh, not a good reply at all. Because first of all, they did have knowledge; they had propositional knowledge. That's a full, warranted, true belief, uh, not to do it. Now, your example is like no, no, no. That's not speaking, that's not knowledge. But, they they heard say, a command. My response. Right, it, I understand that, but what correct. you just said is incorrect. You just okay. call that knowledge, yeah, and that, that is. is not knowledge. Yes, it is. It's a knowledge. It's knowledge under the technical definition of knowledge. It is knowledge. That's why we use premises that derive a, a conclusion that's logically valid and sound. That's propositional knowledge. We have knowledge, but there are different types of knowledge, right? That there's acquaintance knowledge, or that's what I'm calling experiential knowledge, which they didn't have of certain things. So here, here's my example to refute. And I don't have any experiential knowledge what it's like to to murder someone. Um, so that's like me saying, okay, well, I, I, I'm just going to go and try it and be like, what? I, I didn't know any better. I, I had no experiential knowledge of what it's like to kill someone until now. Now I know it's bad, but before I'm, I'm innocent, even though I'm a rational being, I know propositionally without having any experience that it's wrong to murder someone and I shouldn't do it. Um, d does that analogy help to explain i i would be guilty if if i just yeah, said not really i'm uh, a baby not, I, not really because what you're what you're what the story gives us is uh i am telling you not to do this thing and i'm not giving you any other reason not to do it except that i say it and the fact that i'm going to give you this particular punishment that i am telling you now i'm not going to define this punishment um, I'm not going to make sure you understand what this punishment means. I'm just going to say these words. Uh, and yeah, I know that you don't know what the full extent of that is, but that's what you have to go on. And, you know, at, at some point, eating a tasty fruit that's been put in your face every day that looks appealing to you, that was designed to be attractive to you, mm -hmm. unlike dog poop. 
Dog poop, not attractive. That fruit, very attractive. Designed to be attractive, designed to be in their face. You tell me that, okay, you're, there's going to be some punishment, but maybe you're thinking, well, you know what? I'll take the punishment. I want to try that fruit. Maybe you wouldn't take the punishment if you actually understood what the words meant, what the punishment meant. You do need some knowledge uh, to understand uh, consequences. And I would say that this is also a further part of the uh, problem with the Christian story. I will mention again, if the ultimate punishment is hell, that should have been mentioned there and explained. If, if what you're saying is, I'm going to tell you not to do this, and the deterrent is, uh, I will make this thing happen, then that thing has to be something that people fully understand. And, yeah. and I, don't, I don't think that in this story, in this story, there's no evidence that there was any understanding. Right, but there's no evidence that they didn't understand either. So you got to be careful that you're not re- – you kind of scolded me for reading in about TVs in heaven. You, you can't do read in that they didn't understand. They did understand they would experience death. Um, we can read into that 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 was also spiritual death kind of thing from Genesis as well. So okay. I, I, there was I necessary- don't necessarily read into that. But I, I mean, look, I don't understand well, here- the punishment – reading the literature now with all the tools that I have in front of me. I don't yeah, see how we, how, we underst- how we think that they understood it better. Because they were communicating directly with God. Okay, well, they, that's, they but it's, it's headcanon. They didn't ask any questions. Uh, God didn't give any further explanation uh, in the story. So anything else that we assume is just headcanon. All I'm doing is commenting on what the story gives us. Right, but the the story doesn't give us these six-year-olds with no understanding of of the consequences or anything like that. That we can't. If well, they anything, didn't, they didn't seem to understand that the snake was evil. I mean, you know, it it would have been helpful if God had said, "By the way, I've got this evil creature in here, and he's going to try to uh, cajole you into disobeying me. You should not listen to that guy. That's a bad guy." So here, here's why it's not good that they did this. And this, this is our fundamental thing. It's, it's because it was an exercise of faith. It was, look, you're supposed to have faith in God. You, you submit to him. You trust what he says is good for you. No matter what anyone else says, no matter what you think, God has proven himself. The Christian God, assuming he's real uh, and is all good and is omniscient and everything, you should place your faith in that being. You say, I, I think smoking's good. I, I'm eating an apple or eating a fruit that looks good to me, but God told you don't. So okay, I have but he gave I, me I, he gave me free will to choose to do that. And he gave me a body with senses that says this is pleasant. Now, once again, if he cared about what was actually good for me and wanted to steer me into what was not good for me, he could have made me differently so that those things did not appeal to me. Now, what you were saying is, well, but it's it's this big test, and this kind of goes into the last part of my series, which is God is evil, because I think that such a test on its face is an evil thing. Uh, this is this is not about making sure that you do the right thing and that you steer clear from uh, dangers and so forth. This is about something else entirely. Uh, so part of my argument here, uh, just once again bringing it back and getting drawing near to a close <laughs> for those who 
Um, you know, are they in, man, how long are they going to go with this? Uh, we're, we're coming to a close, I think. Uh, so the idea that God is in it for himself, uh, that his idea of happiness is about him and not about us. So I, I agree that God is all about happiness, but he's about his happiness. Uh, and not necessarily about our happiness. He wants us to have faith in him. He doesn't want to make it clear uh, what his true nature uh, is. He, want, he wants to give us just enough information to be mildly curious, but not enough information uh, to take us where we need to be. It's the, it's the point that I was making about sight and tire earlier. God knew exactly the amount of evidence he needed to save Syrentarian. If, if they had seen those signs, and by the way, these were not things that God wasn't willing to do. God gave these signs to other people. The only reason he held them back from uh, Tyre and Sidon is because he knew that they would be convinced. <laughs> so he stopped just short of giving them what they needed so they would be lost. And he's playing a, some type of game to say, well, you know, I just, I just want you to try harder, try harder, try harder. Oh, well, you didn't try hard enough. Go to hell. Um, that's not a game I am interested in playing. That is, that is not a God that I'm interested in playing it with. I think that that is an evil in and of itself. It is a selfish act. It is, it is God having a sense of what he thinks is a good heaven. Uh, and so that's what he's working toward. He's not working toward our sense of fulfillment at all. Uh, it's all about his sense of fulfillment. And if we don't fit in with that picture, he's done with us. Okay, perfect. Yeah, so so just in, in closing then, I, I would say that the, pur the purpose of Genesis or the entire Bible, Abraham's example, New Testament examples, faith is something that's essential. And this is why God had to do it the way he did, because... Faith or trust, that's what the word means, Fides, is, is good for human well-being and flourishing. Civilizations Except are built. Except for all the people who end up in hell. Not, it wasn't good for them. Because they didn't have trust, but it would have been good if right. they Right, so it wasn't good for them. That, that's part of the problem with hell is there's not going to be trust in, in each other. You're going to be all selfish and oh, paranoid. You can't trust. That could be part of the problems in hell. But trust is an essential heaven-fit character trait. Um, so it is necessary for God to instill faith as a, a character trait, trust in God, trust in each other, uh, the, the other people in heaven. This is something that is conducive towards human flourishing uh, and human well-being and what will help make heaven heaven. And uh, it, it works here on earth as well. Okay, this but is trust is earned, is. isn't it? I mean, you can't trust. You can't just say trust me because I say trust me, or trust me because I'm smart, or trust me because I'm good. No, there has to be some demonstration of things that breed trust. Trust cannot be commanded any more than love can be commanded. I mean, you just will be saying well, love is essential and you don't have it. Well, look, if I don't love you, it's because I find you unlovable. It's not something that you can command me to do. Uh, it is something that I either do or do not do based on the natural uh, course of our relationship. So in that sense, saying that trust is necessary uh, is also an evil that I would, uh, that I would say, no, that's... 
Trust is not necessary. And, and if it is necessary, then you have the responsibility of doing everything that is necessary to not only earn it initially, but maintain it. And I would argue that God has not done that. Now, okay. once again, this goes into other arguments that I will be uh, making in the following weeks. Yeah. Uh, but if, in fact, trust is key, then it's not our fault that we don't trust God. Okay. Uh, so, yeah, so I would agree. I would disagree with that. I think that God has demonstrated his, this is meant to be my closing, but okay. So okay. God, has, Go ahead. God does demonstrate uh, his faithful, worthy manner or whatever, that he is worthy of faith by definition of who he is and for having created us, right? If, if you're saying he's all good in my sense of the word and he's in the sense that he embodies the necessary moral perfection, he's morally perfect and he's omniscient, so he can't be incompetent and trying to give us good commandments that are good for us, but actually they're in fact bad for us. These aren't options. Yeah, I, I'm going to place trust. That's a good thing to do. I place trust in my doctor because she's competent in medical manners. Uh, and yet you would change your doctor if you had reason to believe that uh, she was not doing a good job at some point for whatever reason. Right. So that's and, why you got to debate. If and he's and that's why. Time. And so understand this is an honest argument from me that I've been making. And one of the reasons I wanted to start off with the um, granting the Christian as much as possible is because I was a Christian and I granted all of those things. I have been there, granted those things, believed those things, and yet I still managed to end up not trusting this God. Yeah, even, that, even, even right. having granted, coming from a place of thinking, no, this God knows what he's doing. This I, I you know whatever he says even if it runs counter to my intuition I did that enough times so that my trust was eroded at some point and once again I would say that's not my fault that's his fault uh, and you know it, you know if if what you're saying is trust well yeah. that has to be an honest emotion if however all you're saying is obey that's different that doesn't require any emotion. Uh, you can say you don't have to like the guy, you don't have to trust the guy, you don't have to believe anything he says. You just have to obey so that he doesn't go off with your head, right? But that's not what it's supposed to be. And so if it's a matter of uh, trust and faith, I had those things, granted him those things, and he didn't hang on to them. Not my fault. Okay. Yeah, and, and that is the divide. I, I do think it is your fault. And um it's a shame that, okay, so I, I get that you're saying it sort of eroded over time. You, at first you did and that sort of thing. But it, that that implies that you didn't actually trust him even the original time. You sure had does. Trust doesn't angry. mean that you think that a person can never fail or that a person can never do anything wrong. That's not trust. That's sick. That's sickness. That's mental illness. You are mentally ill if you think that about anything. Not in God's case. God is. God is morally perfect. Right? Okay. This is why he's worthy of our un infallible trust. This is why we should trust him. It, it, I, get, I get that if you're... Bear in mind, we're, we're not doing this in the context of is the Christian God false or true? Obviously, in that case, you got to... Right, but, but you got to understand my perspective that even even you can understand this. You don't have to go to the God step to get there. 
a small child who doesn't understand anything about morals and ethics or what's right or what's a good touch or you know what's safe or just take that child who trusts their parents implicitly by nature they trust they they trust the sound of their voice they trust the the particular rhythm of their heart they are hardwired to trust if you abuse that child that child may not understand abuse but you will erode their trust and and there is there is nothing that you can do to keep it if you do that there is a way even for a superior being to become untrustworthy or do things that harm a person's trust uh in you know while they're trying to do uh, their duties and so if god is trying to do something in my life for me he needs to learn how to do it in a way that does not uh make me feel uncomfortable and erodes my trust because i did not purposely have my tr- erode my trust this was not something that i actively did any more than uh, it's something that a toddler act- actively does it is something the parent does it is not the toddler's fault that they no longer trust their mother and it is not my fault that i no longer trust god and and to say that it is means that you don't understand trust no i think i do actually pretty well, well um you don't I, understand I it the same way i do <laughs> so i i think that we could I, I think, think we could say that so put it this way it, it depends on the reasons and a morally perfect god would never give you sufficient reason to not trust in him, he's not a defective parent where trust can erode. Well, but I, but I disagree. He is a defective parent because trust has trust does erode. Okay, so and, let and, you know, and if, right. So if he, if so for me, instance, he needs to touch you in a way that uh, is healing, there's a difference between touching you in a way that's healing and touching you in a way that's sexual. And if you can't sort out the difference between those two, you're a bad parent. You're a bad doctor. And, you're, and the patient is going to lose trust in you. That is not the patient's fault. That is not the child's fault. Okay. Yeah, so it comes down to that question. You, you ask for yourselves, is God a molesting doctor or is he... Let's say that's not his intent. I don't, I, don't even have to, I don't even have to say that's intent. Maybe, he's just, maybe he does that because he's just bad at his job. It doesn't matter. The fact is it was enough to make you uncomfortable and you lost trust. The fact that you lost trust doesn't mean that you did anything wrong. Okay. Yeah. So that doesn't apply in God's case. God is not an incompetent doctor. He's not. But if, uh, we, if he makes us feel he, like he's incompetent, he's incompetent. Best doctor in the world with a bad bedside manner is not going to be the best doctor in the world because you're going to go somewhere that you uh, feel more uh, listened to and uh, feel that the doctor is more trustworthy. Okay. Yep. But God hasn't done that. that but He right. has done that. That's what I am telling you. That is what you. That is what you. Yes, that is my claim. This look, is look, what I'm telling is, you. This is what and, the debate is, right? I'm trying to give my. But you're telling. But you're telling. You're telling uh, non-Christians that their experience is wrong. I, I'm yeah. telling you the experience. Yeah. Well, you're telling me my faith is wrong. We're allowed well, to no, no, say your faith. Yes, well, but I'm, I'm telling you the, the experience debate? of how trust is lost. Is it is not that I did something to actively stop trusting you. And, and, to, and to, suggest, to suggest otherwise is to blame the victim. Yeah, and, and I, that, I, that type of victim blaming is what I am not going to easily stand for. Okay, so uh, I, I, hear, I hear the spirit of, of, of Tara 
in my head again. And she is right about this. No, she's not. No, she's wrong. <laughs> Absolutely wrong. <laughs> As are you. Uh, so the, uh, look, so this is what the debate is about. That's fine. Let's let's leave it. Let me get my closing thing out. So that's fine. De this is what it all boils down to. I, you have faith, right? Does God has God given sufficient reasons to trust Him or not? And you you can assess that. Um, I think He has. David thinks He hasn't. I David would blame God because He lacks trust. I would blame Him, not necessarily for actively not wanting to trust Him. It could have been something He didn't do. It 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 goes back to that real seeker mentality. Uh, real seeker justification. Um, but yeah, my, my closing thing was just to say God is God creates us for mutual benefit. I think it we benefit, but it's not God also gets benefits from creating us that wouldn't have applied had he not created us. Now God was perfection. He's not dependent on creation in any way. He's just as good uh, without creation as he is with creation. But with creation, there are certain things. For example, he has relationships with more persons, not just three, but he has relationships with more persons uh, that get saved for an eternity. That's a good thing that wouldn't have come about without creation. Now, obviously, creation comes attendant with certain bad things, people not choosing to be saved that detract. Um, and that's where I get into my overall utility. It's, it's equal, and that's what justifies God making the free choice to create. Um, but I just wanted to end with salvation. Here's a quote from John Zoller, Dr. John Zoller. So, look, heaven or self Christian salvation will be so vast, its beautiful valleys, its foothills and lofty mountains so extensive, its crystal clear streams and rivers, its vegetation with its marvelous forests so wonderful that it will be even far beyond our wildest imagination to conceive. I believe that it will take an eternity of years to see but a small part of God's wonderful heaven and creation to meet and fellowship with the multitudes of the redeemed who will be there. Um, so yeah, I just wanted to end off with that, with that quote. I, I think Christian salvation is worthy of pursuit. Um, there are many good things that we know will take place, but there's much more that we don't know. And far from being a deterrent in what we don't know, that just inspires my curiosity, human designed curiosity to know more and to learn more about about this wonderful place that god has in store for us so yeah thanks for thanks for listening everyone yeah so uh next week and by the way i'll still take new york without christians uh <laughs> other than this made-up fantasy about what heaven is but at any rate um <laughs> so next week <laughs> next week not next week uh actually Dale, what are we going to be talking about next week? I can tell them what's next in the series. What's next week? Uh, yep. So depending on uh, if – I'm not sure when Mike will – Mike's probably going to come on the following week um, and Gary's coming on from mid-January. I'm going to invite uh, – I'm going to invite Mike um, the week after next. Uh, okay. So – okay. Yeah. All right. Uh, perfect. So now I don't know whether he will accept that week, but that's that's when I'm going to invite and I'll gotcha. send him an so, invitation about ten days in advance. So, okay. So so yeah, whenever, regardless of the time. The next time I'm doing my topic, um, it's going to be the first part of a series uh, like what David's doing, starting with the coherence of Christian theism. 
Um, so I'm, I'm breaking up certain properties um, that the Bible describes about God, the Christian God, seeing if they're logically coherent. And then this is going to culminate in trying to provide an ontological argument to prove that God, a modal ontological argument that God does exist. Um, so yeah, for, for part one, I'm doing first three properties, which I think are related. Um, so it's going to be God is a person and or personal. He is a spiritual being, meaning he's immaterial uh, or he's, um, what's the, incorporeal. And he is omnipresent. So these are going to be, are, are these concepts logically coherent or not? That's the plan for, for my next topic. Yeah. And uh, uh, just a preview, no, they're not. Um, the next any time, <laughs> just, just to know any of them, even the personal. Well, that's... so the, yeah, I'm going to even argue that that's incoherent depending on when you start the person. So for instance, if you start the person before matter, uh, and energy and so forth, then yeah, it's in, it's incoherent, uh, okay. because you've also made him in, incorporeal. Yeah. I, I, so, so I have some serious problems with the idea that, uh, you know, he doesn't really exist by what we mean by existence, but he's there. And yes, he's a person, a non-corporeal person. He's an invisible guy. Yeah. No, so that's not really that's not really coherent. So you're not really saying a person and then non-corporeal and then spiritual. You're kind of putting it together. And so neither one of those attributes make sense in that particular soup. You, you yeah. have to well, change what, what the I soup for, for that to make sense. Yeah, and what I should say with logical coherence, I guess I'll be saying this next week anyways, but yeah, so I'm building up. So I am just starting, he's personal, or pretend he's embodied, but personal, and, and then I build up kind of thing to these properties, but then it's going to have to be the conjunction itself also has to be logically coherent. So I'm guessing that's uh, where David is going to be. Yeah, I'm going to say that at the ultimate recipe, when you're done making your recipe, that recipe can't exist. <laughs> that recipe is not logically incoherent. Yes, there are carrots. Yes, there are green beans. Yes, there are... But the way you're trying to make a soup, no, you can't make a soup. Okay, all right. Yeah, I look, <laughs> I look, forward, I look forward to that. And I made sure to put in the incorporeal things. I, I followed your advice by using my second most important ones first and then doing the lesser ones and then going to the finishing off with omniscience and all of that. So, yeah. all right, cool. Yeah, and uh, the next time we get back to this series, I will explain why you should uh, not care about what the Bible says because, well, the reason I don't care is I don't understand it and neither do you. Uh, and that is, the, that is the next case I will be making. And so we've got a lot to look forward to in the month of January and February. Like I said, some guests that we have not uh, mentioned that will be coming on board soon. So things are getting very excited around here at Skeptics and Seekers. We will see you next time. Bye-bye, everyone. All right.